Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 16, as we continue to make our way through uh, this great letter from Paul to these uh, believers living in Rome, living in the capital city of the Roman Empire, the center of all power and all authority, and uh, who hear in these first verses, as we've seen, about a, about a different king, another king who has come. And then Paul goes on in these verses that we're reading this morning to state the theme of this letter, the basic content of this letter, what this letter is about. And then at verse 18, he moves into the first of the major sections of this letter. And let me just tell you that what he's intending to do in verses 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter uh, 3 is describe for us, show us the universality and the pervasiveness of sin. That's, that's what he's doing. And that's where we're going to be this morning and for the next couple of weeks at least. So read with me at Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Keep that in mind. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. May God give us help as we seek to understand his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the fact that when you speak, whenever you speak, you speak the truth. And thank you that in your your goodness and through your power, you've preserved what you have spoken for us, for our benefit. And we thank you that while hard, we can trust these words. So come and help us as we seek to understand them and then live, ordering our lives in accordance with them. Come and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we come to the first major section of Paul's letter to the Romans. And in uh, this particular section, Paul is speaking of a fundamental problem that we all have. It's uh, a four-letter word except it only has three letters. You know, four-letter words you're not supposed to use. And this is a four-letter word that only has three letters, and and we're not supposed to use it. And it's the word sin. Um, That's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with the universality of it. He's dealing with the pervasiveness of it. Uh, It's a word, as we continue to build our gospel vocabulary, it's a word we need to recover 
and we need to take seriously. Paul clearly does. It's a fundamental problem. Uh, it is a fundamental core issue for us as human beings. I was heard last weekend when uh, Barb and I were away and we're in Chattanooga uh, doing wedding planning stuff, heard uh, the minister of the church that my daughters attend cite C.S. Lewis from his essay, The Weight of Glory. And Lewis in that essay makes this uh, very insightful, very trenchant comment in response to anyone who would suggest that the most important issue in life, the most important question in all of life, is the question, what do I think of God? Now, that's an important question. It's an important issue, to be sure. You learn a lot about a person when you ask a person, what do you think about God? But Lewis objects and says that's really not the most important question, the most important issue. The most important question is not what I think of God, but what God thinks of me what God thinks of me. In fact, he says, what I think of God is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of me, how he thinks of me. And that's strong, but it's something that makes a great deal of sense. So come, come let us reason together. Come let us reason together. If God is really there, And if he is there as the infinite and personal triune God who is the creator and the sustainer of everything that exists, as the Bible makes clear, and if he is moving all of human history in the direction of a great and glorious end, at which time every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, then it makes good sense for me to get clear in my own head what it is that God thinks about me because all of history is moving in the direction where every human being, as individuals, will stand before the great God who is really there. So it's pretty important for me to get clear in my head who I am and what it is that God thinks of me. I mean, it's important to get clear in my head what God thinks about everything, to be sure. But there is something intensely personal about me, isn't there? There is something tremendously important about me, isn't there? And that I get these things clear in my head as history moves in the direction of that great and glorious day. And that's the focus that Paul has in this first section of this letter. He begins with these chilling words. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness among men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, Paul, in the previous 17 verses, has used the word gospel four times. Good news. Great good news. Glad tidings. Great good news. What is it? Well, he tells us what it is in verses 2 and 3, and this is by way of review, admittedly. But you know what the fundamental rule of education is, don't you? Repeat, repeat, repeat. We're slow. I'm slow. What's the glad news? What's the glad tidings? What is the great announcement? Well, the great announcement is that the promised son of David, the long-awaited deliverer king, has come. 
He's come. That's what verses 2 and 3 tell us. The gospel of God is about the one who was promised in the prophets in the scriptures concerning his son, descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That's the glad tidings. That's the good news. That Jesus, the promised Redeemer, Deliverer, King has come in fulfillment of the Old Testament, a true descendant of David who is also God the Son. And his identity as God the Son is validated, vindicated and validated by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection confirms for us that he is who he claimed to be, God the Son. And in keeping with what is promised concerning him, when the king comes, when the deliverer comes, when the redeemer comes, he comes to put everything right. That's why he comes. He comes in fulfillment of the first promise and all of the promises scattered across the whole of the Old Testament, promising someone who's going to come to deliver and vanquish evil and crush the evil one. But that's where the rub is. That's where the rub is for us, isn't it? Because if the king would come and the king would brandish his saber and the king would eradicate all evil from his realm and make no mistake about it, the world and everything in it belongs to him. It comes from him. It belongs to him. The whole universe is his. It is his realm. There is a usurper who seeks to assert his authority in the place of God, the prince of the power of the air. But there are other usurpers who seek to assert their authority in the place of God. And dear friends, that would be us. That would be us in our natural condition, in our condition apart from Christ. We're usurpers. We're rebels. We we are those who have committed cosmic high treason, to quote C.S. Lewis again. And if the king were to come and brandish his saber and eradicate all evil and all rebellion from his realm, from what rightfully belongs to him, there would be no one left. So when Paul begins to proclaim and herald this gospel, he starts where you have to start. He starts with people. At the core and heart and center of the gospel, this great announcement are human beings. And what Paul begins with is this basic against this wonderful announcement of great good news. He begins with this assessment of the human condition. And it's not good news. It's bad news. He begins with people. People who are not neutral about God. But people who are in fact hostile toward God. There is enmity between God and man. That's what Paul is going to show us. Individual human beings are not at peace with the God who is really there. And that's the bad news. And the bad news only accentuates how really good the really good news is as we understand better and better the bad news. It's an illustration. You've heard it before. Some of you have heard it from me. If you go to the doctor, you say, I'm not feeling well. He says, let's do some tests. You come back a week later. He says, I've got the test results. I've got some bad news for you, and I've got some good news for you. Here's the bad news. You have cancer. Now, look, up to that moment, cancer is a theoretical thing. You know that it's a bad thing in some theoretical sense, but it's not a personal thing until you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I've got some bad news. You have cancer. But here's the good news. We can cure it. Now, some of you have been down this road. 
Some of you have been down this road. It could be just around the corner. How good does the good news become when you hear the bad news? The news that there is a cure for your cancer becomes incredibly good news. It's no longer theoretical. Suddenly it becomes intensely personal and meaningful. And that's where Paul is with this. How good is the good news? The good news is great, glorious good news against the backdrop of this thing that Paul introduces his argument with, the universality, the pervasiveness of sin, and God's response to it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Jew, Gentile alike. Now let's tease out some things here from what Paul is showing us and is going to show us. Some things that we need to tease out about this wrath of God that is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness among men. What is the wrath of God? This will be a bit of a reminder, but it's a thing we need to be reminded of. Where is it revealed? How is it revealed? And why is it revealed? Four things, two this week, two next week. Okay, so come back. You don't want to miss the bad news, okay? Because you want to be able to hear the good news. What is the wrath of God first? Well, let's remember what we said a couple of weeks ago, that the wrath of God is not a temper tantrum. It's not a temper tantrum. It's not an emotional outburst. It's not a fit of rage. It's not capricious. It's not unpredictable. It's not like what you see in the grocery store, the mother with her five-year-old child. The five-year-old child wants a piece of candy, wants a piece of gum, wants a, a ball in one of those big cages, and the child starts to whine, and the mother says no, and the child whines more loudly, and eventually the child experiences what? A fit, an emotional outburst, an explosion right there on the floor of Publix. Now, what does that provoke from the mother? Cool, calculated, reasoned response? No, it causes an outburst from her, a meltdown from her. You've seen it, haven't you? You've seen an excessive response from a parent to the selfish meltdown of a child. That is not what the wrath of God is. It's not the wrath of a child who is denied something he or she wants. It is not the fit of rage which the child has provoked in the parent who unleashes this emotional fit in the direction of the child in an unreasoned, unfair, and normally excessive manner. That's not what wrath is. You've got to remember this great piece of advice that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago from Ed Welch. You must not think of God as a big human being. <laughs> you must not think of God as a big human being. The wrath of God is something else entirely. Let me give you John Murray's definition of it again. I shared this two weeks ago, but let me give it to you again. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his character. 
Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his character. It is the response of the entirety of his righteous being against things which are wrong. Against things which are wrong. Now, I used an illustration a couple of weeks ago. My sandals. My good friend Ray Fridley brought me a little lock and a piece of chain so that I could chain my new pair of sandals together and probably chain them to my belt so that they'll never be stolen again. You cry out, you respond, you react to injustice. When when you read about a man who abducts an 11-year-old girl and keeps her in a condition of servitude, for years and years and years and years, and this thing is disclosed, isn't there a revulsion in your soul about this? There is a revulsion in your soul. You know, there is still something in us. We retain something of what it is to be in the image of God. And when grievous injustices are seen and witnessed by us, there is a revulsion against them. And we say, somebody needs to do something about that. My best friend, one of my best friends in the whole world, went to see the movie Bambi when he was a little kid. Maybe I've shared this with you. He was six or seven years of age, and they're in the theater. And you remember when the hunters come into the forest, and, and then the, you know, they start shooting everything, and, and, and Bambi gets lost and separated from his mother, and Bambi's looking for his mother. And, and in the midst of this unfolding drama, my friend, who's then six years old, stands up in the midst of the theater and says, somebody find his mommy. Right? It's, I mean, there's something inside us that reacts against what is unjust, what is oppressive, what is right, not right. The problem is this. The problem is this, as we're going to see. Our hearts, our souls, our minds, everything is disordered so that we don't have clear in our minds what is truly just, truly righteous, unjust, and unrighteous. But that is not the case with God. And the wrath of God is God's calculated, reasoned, and reasonable response to injustice, oppression, wrong, wherever he finds it. Now, again, we've, we've got to let God be God. I, I use this little quip with you frequently. I heard it from a, another friend. There are three things you need to to know in order to get along in this world. God is God, you are not, and sin confuses the first two. We've got to remember who we are, and we've got to struggle to come to terms with what God says about himself and understand that both because of our finitude and our fallenness that we are flawed, we don't have things at all, even close in proper perspective. We can get there, but in our natural condition, that is not where we are. And so we have to come to this and understand this and wrestle with this, that God presents himself as one who in a measured, righteous, reasoned manner responds to what is wrong. And the word for that is wrath, and wrath is the visitation of his judgment upon what is wrong everywhere he finds it. 
So that's what wrath is. Now, the second thing, having a feel for what wrath is, where is it revealed? And Paul tells us where it's revealed in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That is where God is, separate from us, over us, above us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. All ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. Now, when you hear the word all, you got to take it literally. You got to, you got to, you got to have a big net, if you will. You've got to cast a big net out there to encompass and enclose everything. All ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. Everywhere it is found. Now, what do these terms mean? These terms ungodliness and unrighteousness. Well, there's a relationship between them, but they are not synonyms. They are not synonymous terms. Ungodliness, first, is simply the rejection of God. It is not godliness, not godness. Paul captures what ungodliness is in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Whereas some of the translations have it, since they did not seek to retain God in their thinking. Since they did not seek to retain God in their thinking, God gave them up. What is ungodliness? Ungodliness is simply, I mean, we, th- we think of ungodliness in sort of moral categories, and it is a moral term to be sure, but it is sort of the moral condition of the heart from which all of the other moral issues emerge. And what is at the core of ungodliness is simply removing God as a factor in the living of life. It's pushing God out of the picture. It's pushing God to the periphery. It is not retaining God as a factor and, in fact, the key factor, the central factor in the totality of life. And let's be careful here. Let's remember that we're talking not about God as I imagine him to be, but God as he really is. And God, as he has revealed himself, verse 19, in the things that he has made. We're going to talk about this more next week. But let's just make this observation that people do not live without knowledge and understanding of the existence of God, no matter where they are. It's there. It's all over the place. Right? Look, people living in faraway, removed, remote places have knowledge of God. The moral problem that human beings face is not a problem of knowledge. It's not a problem of information. It's deeper than that. It's other than that. The information is there. The fingerprints of God, or as one writer puts it, are on every fact of the universe. Every fact of the universe draws our attention to the infinite personal God who is really there. Paul says the things that have been made are evidences 
verse 20, of his invisible attributes. That is, through the things that you can see, the things that are visible, tactile, things you can touch and feel and embrace, through those visible things, certain invisible realities are communicated to us, and those things are truths about God. You look at the world around you. I mean, you look at the world around and you, and, you, and you see a thing of extraordinary beauty and intricacy and interdependence and diversity, and there is a harmony that is retained in the creation. And, and you ask the question, everybody is asked, where did all of this stuff come from? That's what it's there to do. It's there to elicit questions from us, provoke questions in us. And those questions are designed to lead us to an acknowledgement that the infinite personal God, who is the creator of everything that exists, the sustainer of everything that exists, is really there. Right? Um, I, here's a little illustration. I mean, you know, it's so, it's so prevalent for, for people just sort of blithely to accept what comes out of the scientific community. And again, I'm not here to pick a fight. It comes out of the scientific community. This idea that removing God from the equation, if you take God out of the equation, we can still have a sensible, reasonable answer to the question, where did everything come from? And how did it develop into the complex universe filled with all these animate and inanimate things? How did, how did we get to this level of complexity? And the answer that's given is if you start with matter and you're given enough time and you're given the random encounter of Adam against Adam, as Schaefer put it, God against God, little gods banging into each other, then you arrive at the complexity of the universe that we have today. But there's a question behind the question, isn't there? It's the question that Bill Cosby asked years ago. You remember the record where he's on the little soapbox thing and he's all akimbo going down a hill? The title of the album was, Why Is There Air? Why is there something rather than nothing? And what Paul is suggesting to us, what he's saying to, not suggesting, he's declaring to us, is that these things which we see are to provoke questions from us, and those questions are to move us in the direction of an acknowledgement of the infinite personal God who is really there. Now, here's the illustration that I mentioned two minutes ago. This is years ago. Barb and I are living in western Pennsylvania, and a friend who is an atheist who does not believe in God comes to visit us. It's a beautiful summer day in western Pennsylvania, and we're sitting at the picnic table outside our house having a bit of lunch. And she says, this, this is so good. She says, this is a beautiful picnic table. Who made it? You know, this is one of those open your mouth, insert your foot kind of moments. And I said to her, well, here's the, the why, this is the craziest thing. I've never seen anything like it. About two weeks ago, a dump truck pulls up and it's got, it's got one by fours and metal bolts and nuts and washers and some other stuff. And it's just all in the bed of this dump truck. But the craziest thing happened when the guy lifted up the bed, pulled the hatch, all this stuff slid out of the bed of that pickup truck into a perfectly formed picnic table. 
I mean, I don't maybe I'm maybe I'm too simplistic. I don't know. But picnic tables don't get put together that way. They require architects. They do, they have designers. They have manufacturers and builders. There are all kinds of fingerprints all over the picnic table. And when you see the picnic table, and it's a beautiful picnic table, you can't help but ask the question, who made it? And that's where Paul is in Romans 1. He said, look at the world around. This material world conveys all kinds of true things about the infinite personal God who is really there. Invisible to you, but the invisible reality we learn about from the visible things that he has made. It's true of poetry. It's true of buildings. It's true of pottery. It's true of floral arrangements. There's always a designer, a conceiver, and then a manufacturer, an executor behind everything that's made. The point is, the information is there. The information is there. The question is, what do people do with the information? And this is what begins to suggest to us that the problem is much deeper and, frankly, much more complex, much more complicated than a matter of information. It has to do with the basic orientation of the human heart. The question is, what do people do with that information? And Paul is telling us that a feature of the sinful fallen condition is that we remove God from our thinking. We remove God from our thinking. We move him to the periphery. We move him outside of the equation so that he is not the central factor, the dominant feature of our view of the world. That's what ungodliness is. Ungodliness is simply to remove from consideration the God who is there and who has made himself known in the things that he has made. And then what is unrighteousness? Well, unrighteousness, frankly, is the way of living that emerges from a world view, a view of reality which has excluded God as a factor to be considered. That's what unrighteousness is. Unrighteousness is the way of living that grows out of a view of the world where God is no longer considered. And that's what Paul reflects in this passage throughout this passage, frankly, having given up the proper knowledge of God, having rejected him, God gave them over, verse 26, to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that is to retain knowledge of God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, it's the prior thing. It's the removal of God from consideration that leads to the things that ought not to be done. That's unrighteousness. And God's response to both, his response to both ungodliness And the unrighteousness that flows out of it is a just, righteous, indignant, and measured, holy revulsion of his being. Because ungodliness and unrighteousness 
removing God from consideration, removing God from the equation, and the lifestyle, the ways of living that flow out of that that decision, both are a contradiction of his holy being. And his, let me say it again, just, righteous, indignant, and measured response is the response of wrath. Now, let's, let's take this just a step farther and jump down to the bottom of this chapter and recognize all of what is included here, all of what is in view. And I'm just going to submit these verses to you because we're going to look at them again more closely next week. Verses 29 and following, after having said, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Hold your breath. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give give approval to those who practice them. Now look at the list of things. There are things that are invisible. There are things that you can't see. You can't see envy. You can't see envy, but this is what God's response is to it. You can't see covetousness. But this is God's response to it. You can see murder. You can see gossip. Those things are things we can recognize. Some things in this list seem really, really bad. Things like ruthlessness, heartlessness. But what about disobedience with respect to parents? That's included in the list. The point, folks, is no matter where you go in this list, something in this list is going to catch up with everybody. Something in this list is going to catch up with everybody. Paul, in a right way, is ruthless. Ruthless in his assessment of the human condition. And this is where he leaves us. He leaves us with this understanding of the wrath of God as his just, righteous, indignant, and measured revulsion against everything that is the contradiction of his being. And he leaves us with specific illustrations of what ungodliness and unrighteousness look like. Now, we're going to look at in in greater detail at this next week. We're going to, having looked at what wrath is, we're going to look at how it is revealed, and we're going to look more clearly at why it is revealed but between now and next Sunday so that you don't leave this place despairing and hopeless. Let me have you turn your attention away from me to the table in front of you. Because if you want to ask yourself where where this wrath of God is most clearly, most visibly displayed this just, righteous, indignant, and measured response of the whole being of God 
against that which is the contradiction of his character. Understand what the cross is. Understand that Jesus, pure and righteous, who retained God in his thinking every moment of every single day of his earthly existence to the pleasure of the Father, having lived so righteous and perfect a life, took to the cross with him as a substitute dying in your place all of your ungodliness and all of your unrighteousness and the full unmitigated, measured response of God, the holy revulsion of his soul was visited upon Jesus as Jesus died in the place of those who deserve to die. As you come to this table this morning, remember that this table points you back in the direction of a place where the judgment of God was visited so that sinners like us can be freed and can be free of fear. Let's pray together. Let me invite you as we pray to begin preparing yourselves to receive this um, sacrament of the Lord's Supper and to be ministered to by Christ himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We thank you for how big the cross can become in the eyes and the minds and the hearts of your people. And I pray for myself and I pray for each of us that the cross would grow increasingly large and that we would see the cross not as a place where you try to persuade us to be better than what we are, but as the place where you have taken to yourself, fully clothed yourself in all of my ungodliness and unrighteousness and faced the unmeasured and limitless wrath of your Father against all of it. Oh God, set your people free as they come to this table this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.